And utility monopolies are particularly violent and evil because they exert so much political control. A lot of people don't know this, but it is 100% legal for utility monopolies to use ratepayer money to pay for their lobbying and political costs. Often lobbying and spending in elections that work against consumers' best interests, like blocking transitions to clean energy, electing right-wing sociopaths that want to further entrench the utility monopoly. So utilities are, are high in my priority and I think really breaking their political power. We're doing some work on that right now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Helen Brosnan, a progressive activist and organizer who is the executive director of a group called Fight Corporate Monopolies. Before this, she was the Progressive Coalition's director at the Democratic National Committee. Fight Corporate Monopolies works to ensure that our democracy and our economy work for regular people, not just big corporations. It was good to get to know Helen and to hear about her career and how she came to work in this current job. She has a good story, one you should listen to. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Helen Brosnan. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Helen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, definitely. So my name is Helen Brosnan. I am a progressive political organizer and strategist. I've been doing this work for a little while now and actually got my start doing campus organizing and college organizing as many of us do. Um, I thought I went to a Catholic college and encountered resistance to birth control and abortion measures and all of those things at my campus college. And my first radical act was to invite Cecile Richards to speak on campus. And this is Georgetown. We could admit that it's we can, Georgetown. We can say that. Yeah, we can say that on, on the record. <laughs> so it's public information. Love, love and know my alma mater well, even with all its bruises. I can get more into that later, but that was sort of the spark that I think lit a lot of my just own anger and tenacity at the world, but also that we all had a little small rabble-rousing role to play in it. After that, wanted to jump on campaigns, kind of launch myself into wanting to do more organizing and electoral work. It was when I was really looking for my first political job. It was 2016 election season. Hillary Clinton was, was the candidate that we had in the general election, and so I worked on her campaign. My politics changed really quickly or were changed already from that but it was a really amazing experience in many ways and, and taught me a lot and it was gave me a lot of reflection and I met very wonderful people there. And then from there, started doing some healthcare-related organizing, learned how to do more serious grassroots lefty campaigning in the States and nationally. 
and then from there really took off and started started doing some extended electoral work, worked with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, doing a bunch of different things there in immigration world and labor and all that good stuff and learned from a really amazing women-led movement in particular. And then worked around the Elizabeth Warren campaign. That took me to a couple other primary challenge-related campaigns and the wonderful Justice Democrats. And then a couple more stops along the way that I can talk about. And then I'm here now running an organization called Fight Corporate Monopolies, doing some corporate power fighting, which is a full-time job. That's the short version. I'm assuming that at Fight Corporate Monopolies, you have similar resources to the monopolies that you're fighting. So <laughs> right, yeah. I'm interested to hear about how that came to be. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, of course. You see all those record lobbying numbers by big tech and just know that we've got one one thousandth of that, but much, much more passion, I'd like to say. I don't know. I don't mean to make light of a serious subject. It's going to be interesting to hear what you have to say. Let's go back a little bit. Let me ask you some questions about that journey and then we'll get into fight corporate monopolies. So you're talking about your time at Georgetown. You got into activism and you said you invited Cecile Richards, who I know is Ann Richards' daughter because I'm older. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I also love Ann Probably Richards. before your time, but Ann was governor of Texas <laughs> oh, at yeah. one point. Tell me about that event, like what happened there. It's not easy to, to get someone like Cecile to a campus. People like that get tons of invites, lots of places. What were you in the middle of and how did you make that happen? Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk about it um, because it feels like a really long time ago. It was a big moment for me. I was a very goody two-shoes kid. I'd not been in a lot of trouble. I grew up you know, in a heavily white suburban suburb area and kind of kept to myself, had a really good life. And so I, I came, I always acknowledge that because I came to organizing and activism in general from, from a really privileged place. My day-to-day conflicts were very different than what the conflicts in the world that were going on were. And so, you know, being at Georgetown and sort of confronting that there was this institution that was an affront to myself and my peers was a learning experience in many ways. And I actually, I'll mention, because this is a huge part of my own personal organizing philosophy and kind of how I come to this work is very connected to my faith and Catholicism is actually a huge part of my life and religion in general is kind of my nighttime self, but it actually is really in, informs all the work I do. So is there was conflict there because I very much believed in the institution. I was very religious still at the time, but I was very upset that there was, you know, polarization and uh, an outright opposition on campus to allowing students just to have birth control it was a classic scenario of lots of chatter around it. People didn't want to address it directly. There wasn't a real desire, I think, for conflict. And so I thought, what's the best, most attention-seeking action we can take? Let's invite the president of Planned Parenthood and publicize it and make it a huge deal. She'd never spoken there. I should fact check myself, but it was, I want to say it was the first time anyone, like an executive from Planned Parenthood had spoken at the university. I ran a club in college that was basically kind of a speech events club, if you will. We cared a lot about free speech and inviting lots of different people to campus. And so I was like, great, let's invite someone who's going to be controversial, whom I look up to and think is amazing and see what will happen. And to the university's credit, they doubled down and you know defended us. It was dramatic. The Bishop of DC released a statement on it happening. I mean, it was a real kind of dramatic moment, I think, for the university and for acknowledging that there was thousands of women on campus who felt like they were lacking really back basic access to care and, and that their voices weren't being heard. So 
she came, she spoke, it was amazing. And I actually got to interview her, which was very cool at the time. Uh, I felt very honored to do that. But yeah, I had never found myself, honestly, in the middle of a really kind of visceral conflict with an institution like that. I felt lucky that I got to be a part of it, but I also, I think, was really naive. And frankly, it was the first time I was scared shitless. You're getting an email from the president of the university, and you're getting an email from the D.C. bishop, and yada, yada, yada. And I was an 18-year-old and and was freaked out. It definitely lit something in me that, you know, I, I frankly was finding myself like, why hadn't someone done this sooner? And why do we even, are we facing any opposition? They had, like, clergy lined up outside the campus gates trying to block people from getting in. I had someone mail me a letter that was like, Helen drinks babies for breakfast. I mean, it was absurd. And I had just never encountered any of that before. But I I felt really lucky. I was in a movement of other peers and a lot of women on campus who had been leading this fight for birth control access, in particular on campus for a really long time. So I just was building off their backs, frankly, and trying to be as helpful as possible. I'm totally on your side in that fight. (laughs) Good. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how you feel, though, about the opposition, because... We live in a country where we've gotten so divided and where we want to be able to encompass people of varied points of views. And there is something in a Catholic institution and I assume in some of the student body that wouldn't agree with you and me on all of those matters, maybe varying a little bit between birth control and abortion, but whatever. How did you think then about the opposition? How do you think now? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that question. And I think it, funny enough, it's actually why I've continued to be faithful and in many ways even continue to be a part of the Catholic church um, in different forms throughout my life because I care about the opposition. I like to call myself a Catholic in resistance. Like when I am in the pews, I am there in resistance to what's happening around me, but I have a right to be there as much as as anyone else. I say that only because it has informed how I think about opposition and persuasion and sort of beating people where they're at and informs a lot of the work that I do today. I did have this sense of like, okay, there are a bunch of extremely old hyper-religious, hyper-conservative men, these clergy that were there, and there were, you know, again, people outside the institution sort of speaking out and condemning it, like yelling at a group of young, diverse, thoughtful women who want basic access and like representation on their college campus. Like the image of it was absurd. It taught me a really early lesson in like collective action and actually a group of young women are more more than enough and more powerful than a random conservative right-wing clergy member shouting down insults at a bunch of 18-year-olds just trying to exercise their basic freedoms. And that, like, you have to embrace that power and be really proud of it and stand in solidarity with one another. And, you know, it was an early lesson in just, like, actually the kind of, I think, physicality, doing events in person, actually taking action, starting to get involved in direct, direct action for the first time, and how important that is, especially in the face of these really archaic institutions. But I'll just answer in short and how it's made me think about opposition today. They're not as smart as they think they are and as often our side thinks they are. I think sometimes we give opposition too much credit. And in that instance, it was like they were completely caught off guard. Of course, this woman was allowed to come speak. This amazing reproductive rights and reproductive justice leader was going to come speak at campus. She saw that there were tons of young women on campus that supported her. And so I think had we cowered and said, we're going to get too many protests or we'll get yelled at by the church or whatever. It would have never happened. And I think that's been an enduring lesson in many of their fights. 
we also have to show up and mean it. And I, especially as progressives, it's not enough at this stage in the game and the types of corporate Republicans and Democrats and corporate forces in particular that are so entrenched that we are fighting to just say, ah, they're always going to have more money than us. The stakes are too high, A, but also B, we have power and we have to exercise it. That's kind of where I've evolved on on oppositional forces. And I think that's been informed by going up against really, frankly, evil kind of corporate forces um, in electoral work. It's interesting that what you didn't say was that people could be right on the other side in the world as they see it through their lens. This is something I struggle with more maybe at 57 than I might have earlier in my life, that I can entertain that I could be wrong, maybe not on some of these core value things, but I can be wrong on things, and that I have to coexist with people who have strongly held totally diametrically opposite opinions on stuff. It's super hard, I think, when you're passionately fighting for a cause and I like to bring it up a little bit occasionally because I think there's times when politically it can be our Achilles heel being too sure of ourselves, even though that does power a lot of efforts. Well, and also finding the common denominator is not a bad thing. I think for a while sometimes and in, in, on the left that was villainized, there was almost a period of like, that's considered capitulation. And I, I don't see it that way. I'm not, I don't, I, I think trying to find people's common human dignity and potential overlap is an attempt at, also, if we do organizing, we're, our entire goal, if we're good at our jobs is to move people to where we are. And, you know, it's cheesy, but often everyone knows this. If you've ever knocked a door before, it starts with, seeing where people are, what pain are they feeling? Is there something I can pull out of that? And so I very much agree with you. And it's something I grapple with every single day, I think in current work that I do, and then have been struggling with it since this first Cecile Richards incident in many ways. But you're right to acknowledge that 100%. I'm curious about another aspect of something you talked about in getting to know you, which is this religion thing. So I am not a religious person. Mm -hmm. For you, that's healthier. <laughs> I find it um, challenging to understand why people believe things that strike me as very unlikely at the very least and harmful in the world sometimes, often. The Catholic Church, for example, has a mixed role in the in the world over time, as anyone, I think, can acknowledge. I just don't get it. But I do have many friends that I get along with that believe stuff like that in, in lots of different religions. What's keeping you in that faith to some degree? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking about it. Sorry to bring it up so early in the conversation, but it's obviously in, in informs this work. So um. we're getting into all the things you're not supposed to talk to. <laughs> people about over the dinner table Religion, supposedly abortion yeah just you got to get it all politics, out at the yeah. beginning yeah it's important politics i mean not to nerd out too much of on this but i like to say that i come from a somewhat rich history of leftist socialist catholic history which exists founder of dsa michael harrington is a, a famous catholic radical as is dorothy day the barrington brothers berrigan brothers lots of folks that i look up to and use as a kind of guiding light so i almost see it more as a movement ethos than i do uh my institutional religion that i uh, follow in every way and it in many ways i think has been a helpful 
actually in, in one kind of grappling with deeper questions around like, was I polarizing or was I too sympathetic to this, this person in the opposition or, you know, to a Republican or to someone who I disagree with, or was I not sympathetic enough? And is, can I show compassion? My more radical approach, more radical sect, personal sect of Catholicism that I found has been very grounding in that way. And to be able to come back and say, okay, dignity above all else, let's genuinely love our neighbors no matter what. And I know that stuff sounds really trite in the context of of current political landscape. And it's not just like a blanket statement that everyone needs to love each other more per se. I have a hard time doing this work without a moral center. And I there's things that I believe outside of my religion. There's things I believe in in part because of my religion. It's been a real central central mechanism for me to not get, I think, swept up by some of the divisiveness and just silliness and even gossipy or, or mean-spirited nature of politics and organizing sometimes, I find it really helpful. But I'll also just say, you know, I'm a gay person trying to get married and can't get married in the church I go to every week. And so I'm well aware of the absurdities. You know, I'm laughing about it, but real deep pain that I experience lots of people in, in, in religious circles and, and Catholicism, but beyond that experience. And on that exact note, it has very much been a helpful lens for me to understand and I think be able to talk to people more directly about what it means to actually push an institution as an individual. And it can feel silly. I'm a random person and I'm saying I'm pushing the Catholic Church, but I like to think my existence, my insistence on showing up and being myself in many different settings, you know, says something larger about what we're all capable of doing in the face of these really massive kind of sometimes seemingly unmovable forces. So that's, that's how I see it. It's almost like an organizing practice for me in a different, in a different way. Um, and, and I'll just say to your earlier point, it gives me a real point of relation and relationship to people. I think actually the left is really bad at talking about faith and religion. And it's a huge problem because it's how lots of working class people relate to themselves and community. We have a, obviously a, a real crisis. And I, this is something I think a lot about in my current work, a crisis of isolation, mental health and connection to technology and aloneness and lack of community structure and all of those things, depending on on who, where, what, et cetera, there is an important role that faith more generally can play in solving some of those problems. And so I try to use that as a tool, at least when I'm communicating with people or trying to organize with people. One of the things about fighting corporate monopolies is that sometimes that creates odd bedfellows in politics. And it's not only the left or the non-religious or whatever, the Democrats and other Republicans that could be enlisted in that fight. It makes me curious about where the most effective organization is going to come from that can create a coalition to tackle this problem. You could find consensus that there's a problem very broadly in society, and there might be very different ideas about how and where to tackle that. The The monopolists have their allies, too, across the, the board, right? Where you're coming from is interesting to me in someone doing what you do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with all that. And again, I think sometimes these can seem like... Um, like I'm stretching a little bit, you know, to connect community and social social isolation and faith and crisis of faith to monopoly power. 
But to me, they really go hand in hand. Destruction of local communities, destruction of local businesses, destruction of, you know, people's dignity and jobs being shipped overseas. And and then, you know, a real kind of current crisis that lots of people are going through in this country. So I think they're related. And, And I also think like the current movement against monopoly power and corporate power in general, it's a really exciting time because they're are so many brave and and vibrant regulators and legislators who are actually doing work on this. But I think where we are now is actually creating and, and bolstering a little bit more of a, you know, political and, and movement oriented kind of ecosystem around around this that people are already doing in local communities across the country. People have been fighting corporate power in their towns and cities for longer than we can ever imagine. But I think that's kind of where we are currently in the fight is that actually making these more emotional connections to why corporate dominance has potentially hurt, harmed, you know, individual people and, and families and communities, we need to actually make that emotional demonstration and not have it live in the hypothetical or just in DC, if you will. So when you were talking about your rather short time with Hillary in the general election, you seemed apologetic about it. My observation is that she was on the Cecile Richards side of a lot of what you're talking about politically and in many aspects of her politicalness is a progressive person. So I wondered why you we took pains to distinguish yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't say it's apologetic at all. My personal politics have changed a lot since then, but at the time and even now, and I've heard other people express this, I feel felt a lot of pride genuinely and i think this is also something that the left does badly is it's okay to take pride in in working for a woman and feeling represented by people that's not like a negative thing and so i felt a lot of pride at the time i felt it was really historic i was working with some of the smartest most talented people in politics and i felt unbelievably lucky to kind of be around people like that so i think that was more what i took from the experience was like oh there are people that do this in their lives and have been able to marry wanting to help people in a kind of complicated and sometimes tricky political system into a job. And this is really inspiring. But it's more just that I think I've evolved into the the type of candidates I think now actually represent the society we are living in. I would say Hillary Clinton isn't necessarily that, but I I still feel pride and felt a lot of pride at the time um, in what the kind of history we were a part of. I feel lucky to be a part of something much larger than myself and watching my mom and my sister vote for the first time for a female, you know, we're all crying together. Like there was a real, a real heart attachment, I think, to doing that work. And I just felt lucky that I got to do it, but have definitely been disappointed at, you know, I was working um, with Jamal Bowman on, on running an independent expenditure for in support of his campaign and the day she endorsed Elliot Engel. I was like, I think this explains why my politics have changed, but that's part of an evolution. And everyone is, I am, I I hate when people, again, I think sometimes on the left, but in politics in general, evolving is treated like a negative thing when that's actually what we're asking lots of people to do every single day. So I try to be graceful with everyone's personal political evolutions, but, but yeah, I don't know if I wouldn't say apologetic, I guess I've reflective about that time and what I learned from it. You've become part of the the Bowman wing of the party rather Proudly. than the Clinton wing yeah. of the party. And yeah. so have a lot of people, you know, we've changed. The whole the whole apparatus has changed. I'm not sure where I'd locate myself, but I do think that both the Angles and the Bowmans are highly preferable 
to the MAGA right, which I think is the real opponent. And so I keep that in mind. What was Rise to Run? Yeah, so Rise to Run was an awesome organization that I helped work on with Shannon Watts, who founded Moms Demand Action, the amazing grassroots army against gun violence. Basically, it was right after 2016, and we kind of we had gotten together and heard a real influx from younger women in particular who wanted to run for office and didn't have tools to do it, like really young women, high school, college age, who wanted to run for hyper-local positions and just didn't have a community and connections. So we got together and tried to create a bunch of toolkits and lessons and all these good things to help a bunch of women that we had been connected with. So that that was a really exciting experience. And then I ended that shortly and we kind of gave away all the materials to existing groups who did really similar work who wanted to absorb younger populations that we had been talking to. Was Be a Hero next for you? Be a Hero was next. What was that? Yeah, so it's a it's a campaign, now a full-fledged, amazing organization that um, Audie Barkin and Liz Jaff started. Liz Jaff is a friend and operative from the Obama campaign. And then Audie Barkin, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He is a really inspiring, wonderful friend and activist fighting for universal health care and lots of, you know, expanded rights um, in kind of the care and disability world as well, given his own condition with ALS. I got connected to Liz. I was super young. I was offering to do contract work. They definitely looked at me and said, like, you look like you'll travel on a bus tour for three months. Like, you're young enough. You don't have a family. You're like, you, you can handle this. I don't think I asked a single question about the job. They both, I was so inspired by Audi. I was really, at the time when the healthcare debate was raging over the ACA too, I think it kind of put everything into stakes and what was in front of us. So I was eager to jump in and be useful in um, and just kind of the broader protecting our healthcare as much as possible fight, which was very vibrant at the time. Yeah, it was started by the two of them in response to an incredible moment where Adi confronted Jeff Flake on a plane. Are you familiar with this this incident? I am, yes. And I interviewed Liz I figured like, in 2018 oh, before okay. this, but I, I am familiar with that conversation between flake and yes Barkley. yeah he did conversation yeah so that it kind of it kind of sparked from from that i met the two of them shortly after that and um it was the 2018 or 2018 elections were heating up and this was you know healthcare was suiting up to be kind of one of the big issues of the election cycle and we looked at each other and said like let's take it on the road this is really resonating with people and people are really understanding that people like Jeff Flake are, are villains in this story and are going to be the reason that they don't have expanded access to healthcare or have no healthcare at all and they should know that I was tasked with basically looking at a map of the U.S. and saying where should we go what are the important congressional districts and how can our wheelchair accessible RV that we got on eBay get us there and it was the ride of a lifetime. So that was that whole summer. We, the three of us, plus a, a crew of other ragtag types, traveled in or alongside this RV across the country. I think we went to 33 congressional districts and like 20-odd states. What did you learn from that? That sounds like a really major life experience. Oh, my gosh. It is definitely a defining kind of moment for me. It goes back to the scene you were talking about earlier. Just the real existential and personal and physical pain that people are experiencing and how that is actually the real unifying kind of experience among so many Americans and working class people right now. I'll say a couple things. One, also how 
little people expect from their healthcare system and, and from what they deserve, the types of care they deserve. I think people don't realize how much better it could be and that people should be guaranteed healthcare. We've led people to believe that actually the struggle to, to just access any care and have medical debt and be on the phone with your insurer for eight hours is like a uniquely American experience and that's just what it is and that we can't have a better world. That was just very heartbreaking and really has stayed with me that we actually have a lot of work to do in terms of helping people imagine what's possible and that they deserve full care and not to be in medical debt. And I think second, the physical beauty of the places we were going to in America and also the people we were meeting, you know, people in their communities who had been rising up against a local insurer or insurance company for 20 years or people who had been fighting a fraudulent medical claim for 30 years, you know, people who had really been in, in personal and political struggles for their whole lives. It made me feel very patriotic. I was very moved. We were driving through Wyoming. We stopped in Laramie, Wyoming. There was a young man murdered there, I think 15 or 20 years ago um, for being gay. And then the town kind of in response became this somewhat, I mean, I won't speak for the people of Laramie, but somewhat of a safe haven for queer and, and gay people in Wyoming. And so we stopped in this town and it was like just this kind of beautiful microcosm of lots of different kinds of people and, and learning the history and that people had kind of come together and created this beautiful community and a place that otherwise might not have been wholeheartedly accepting and also just the physical beauty it actually was one of the first and most enduring times that I felt like a sense of pride or patriotism and kind of understood just how moving it was that we live in a place like this and how people deserve more. And so it was kind of those two like confounding big thoughts that actually work against each other. And that, that is what stayed with me. And just that it's a lot of fun to be on a bus with your friends, like drinking every night and hanging out and doing good work and that everyone should do that at some point in their lives. Yeah, I think that there's something profound in that observation, and it's the duality of this country that exists in so many ways, the beauty and the evil that coexist, and the Matthew Shepherds and the positive reaction. And there's so much to just Wyoming alone, forget about all the other places that you could spend your whole life working for Wyoming and trying to make it better and, and learning about the amazing people there all over the place. So that sounds like quite an experience. I've also talked to some of the folks that are key people at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, including Aijin, um, on the podcast. How was that time there for you? Similarly transformative and deeply moving and complicated in that they, you know, were at the center of so much victory, even just that the fight for domestic worker pay and rights and even basic visibility as workers and people in this country. In in many ways, it was really ascendant when I was there. And Aijin is such a visionary in this way, so front and center in the cultural conversation and in politics. And you heard like major presidential candidates all of a sudden talking about the care economy and domestic work. And so there are these like incredible movement transformations that I just felt lucky to sort of observe and at the same time, it was also during the first kind of wave of migrant caravans, the family separation crisis was happening, there were legislative setbacks. It was, again, another moment of duality in that you can have these really wonderful and inspiring strides in public and also recognize that there's extreme pain and a fight for, you know, full and equal rights and dignity and respect for domestic workers and particularly low-wage, often immigrant workers and women of color is a 
lifelong fight. And when I think about National Domestic Workers Alliance, I honestly think a lot about longevity. I had the opportunity when I worked there to go to um, Atlanta for a couple months. They had just started their big C4 arm care in action doing electoral work. And so a bunch of us went to Atlanta to work on some elections there. And it was really profound to be in the birthplace of where the movement was really born from from Dorothy Bolden and Black domestic worker movement in the South in particular, having been born there so many years before. And so I just, there was a, there was a constant feeling, I think a lot of people feel this who work in the broader kind of care movement and, and at NDWA, a real profound sense of, of how long and enduring this fight has to be that in many ways you can trace it back to... Um, earliest days possible and enslaved labor. And so I, I think there that 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 really gave me a sense of endurance and, and that we have to actually maintain our own strength and our own dignity in kind of the the face of a lot of these long fights. So you jumped onto a presidential campaign after that? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, how yeah, was that? I was feeling not tired enough. So I said, how can I join a presidential campaign <laughs> and sleep less? I am a huge, a, a huge Elizabeth Warren, uh, Warren wing of the party, as anyone knows who talks to me. So when she announced, I was like, I'll do whatever, I'll do whatever job they have available for me there. I'll throw myself at the wall. It was wonderful. It was really a special group of people. I mean, it was deeply kind, deeply respectful. Most of the people there felt like they were there for a purpose greater than themselves. And it was actually one of the first electoral environments I was on where it felt really in lockstep with movements and social movements and that people understood that hopefully we'll win, first of all. Second of all, hopefully this will shift the landscape and how people think about, you know, what workers and working families and working people deserve from the economy and deserve in their lives. And so... Yeah, it was wonderful. It was amazing. And and I met Mike, my, my closest friends in the world, and was deeply inspired by her. One of my first big, big kind of jobs on the campaign was we did the video interview with Adi Barkin, my friend from Be a Hero. The three of us were in a room together and got to talk about the fight for Medicare for All and universal healthcare. And it was a really wonderful kind of full circle moment um, for me. But but yeah, I have so many thoughts on that campaign that holds a really special place in my heart. How did you sort out the way that primary picked Biden over Sanders and Warren and so many other amazing Democrats? Oh my gosh. The great question of our time that we've all buried down because things have turned out so differently in many ways. Again, I think there's people on the left that maybe think this is kind of lame or silly or not important enough to acknowledge. But I, I think definitely the fact that she's a woman played a huge role. I think people are not ready for a, a woman that like yells and has a lot to say and is super smart and energetic to be leading them. And I just think we have like an entire American history to show for that. So, oh, there was definitely a moment when it looked like she might be the one to get the nomination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Standing in Washington Square Park, listening to her, I think it was like 20,000 people that night come listen to her give a speech on kind of, you know, populist economics and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And she it was a really amazing speech marrying populist politics and, and the women's movement and where she is now. I, I was like, I think we're really going to do it. But 
that was that was definitely the peak of the campaign. And I mean, she got really far. It's amazing. And I, honestly, in many ways, I think built a movement behind her of people who maybe were actually more moderate or more traditional Democrats who really started to understand where she was coming from, learn a new way to think about how we can structure the economy and structure our democracy to benefit people. And I always think of that as one of the greatest legacies, hopefully, that came from that campaign is that we did I think we brought in a lot of new people into this into this work and into this ethos. You can really ask for nothing better than that. But if you look at the Biden administration, it's the Warren administration in many ways in the personnel and lots of the some of the boldest ideas have come from our, our many wonky ideas on the campaign and hard to not say that that's a win in a lot of ways. So that's my that's my take on the primary. <laughs> and I think she still has a lot of influence and ought to. She's an important part of our party and I'm glad she's there. I recently interviewed Zach Exley, who's one of the founders of Justice Democrats and got his version of that. And I've talked to some of the other people along the way that were involved in getting that going, including the person who made the film about AOC winning, knocked down the house. I see it as a kind of an alternate DCCC for people on the left of the DCCC. Help me understand your evolution now politically. What is making you land now at the Warrens and the Justice Democrats? And how are you thinking about politics if that's the place you decide to work? And what was your experience like? I have a lot of thoughts on kind of institution building on the left and the importance of us creating well-running structures and organizations that serve what we're trying to do, um, even if we're more outside agitators. It's hard to point to one moment. I mean, I think when I started working in more healthcare-related advocacy and with Adi, I, at the end of every road was a corporate force and often a corporate Democrat that was standing in the way and goes without saying Republicans. We have an incredible right-wing threat and the entire party is basically bought off by, by corporations. I just had a couple of sort of more naive and younger moments where I would be really shocked to learn that there was a Democrat that was taking money from a pharmaceutical industry. And it just was a real awakening for me. I was like, I can't believe we let people do that. I can't believe that that's a part of our party ecosystem. And so I just, I think really actually doing more issue advocacy and seeing things through a a little bit more of a straightforward issue lens and not an electoral lens just made me be like, well, the enemy really for me is, is, you know, consolidated power that's in the form of consolidated corporate power, consolidated political power, corruption, working for Elizabeth Warren and starting to just have my own like personal revolution and read more about our party history and the role that, that again, corporate power played in influencing our, our electoral landscape was really radicalizing for me. Electoral campaigns are an amazing way to make change and make a point and move people into action really quickly. I just felt like what Elizabeth Warren was doing and then again what Justice Democrats are doing in so many amazing ways helps move the imbalance of power so quickly. So starting to see electoral work through that fr- framework in my own kind of personal political evolution was helpful. And just seeing that, oh, that's how knocking on a corporate Democrat means that Cori Bush may be representing working class people in her own district and, and she's a nurse and she's going to have legislative transformation and she's going to be sleeping on the steps of the Capitol and, and fighting an eviction moratorium to be extended. Like that kind of material change that can come when you have someone who is, is more representative of the district and also is, is willing to kind of confront 
the kinds of power we're talking about. So that's how I ended up evolving in my own right. Did you think that was an effective organization? Were you happy with like what you did when you were there and how they gave you a role and, and things like that? Justice Democrats? Yeah. I mean, and I was there for a short period of time, really, but I, I came in in an exciting time when they were thinking about how to do independent expenditures in a serious way. And that's actually kind of a new and complicated concept on the left for, for some of these races. And so I give them so much credit for just being smart electorally and really wanting to play ball when it came to taking on the, the incumbents. And that included having a serious independent expenditure operation. So I came in to help run that for the 2020 congressional cycle, which included Jamal Bowman and Cory Bush, and then Alex Morse up against Richie Neal. I, again, thought they blazed a real path for a lot of other people on the left doing electoral work to see what it's like to run a really robust campaign, including an outside apparatus. They are so impressive in their commitment to helping working class candidates of color in particular and acknowledging kind of the, the barriers and just how they can be supportive and, and through the whole life cycle. Recognizing that actually running, being competent and, and running really smart campaigns is what wins and whether you're on the left or you're more moderate or more institutional. And I think they've taken that super seriously and that's been demonstrated for me a lot and how they've spent all their independent expenditures um, and, and taken that really seriously. So you have quite a political education by this point, all of these different things you've been doing. I mean, that's a pretty intense stretch from college to becoming executive director of Fight Corporate Monopolies. Was Fight Corporate Monopolies something before you landed there? And how did you end up as executive director? It's, it's still, you know, very relatively new, only a couple years being used as a small advocacy and IE vehicle last cycle. And actually, they spent some money and did some advocacy in the two primaries against that I was on the other side for in Justice Democrats against Clay and Neil. Who founded it originally? Originally, it was, well, it was founded out of out of Economic Liberties Project, Sarah um, and Faz, I think at the time, and then Morgan Harper also was involved. They had the smart idea to, to, to launch a C4 arm I think we've all tried to build it into more of an institution as this political framework around monopoly power becomes even more salient and people are, and salient as a punch and then also salient as a more of a political philosophy. Yeah. So I came on about a year ago after that cycle and they were just kind of starting things up and had done some of these really good ads in the 2020 cycle that I think made a punch. And then I kind of came on to see if we could create a real year round campaigning operation with also some electoral spending and influence and see what we can do to build a little bit more of a political and, and organizing home for, for this work. There are a lot of organizations that fancy themselves in the fight against corporate power, think tanks and politicians and other groups that are in the mix and professors. There's a broad number of people thinking about this and, and regulators now, particularly with the Biden administration pushing this more than we've seen in a while. Although we have a good history in this country going back to the trust busting days, right, with Theodore Roosevelt and people like that. Where do you fit your organization in right now among the different people in this fight? 
Yeah. I mean, I, and I'll just say personally, I come at this work not from, I think there, there's people who have been doing the the real academic and intellectual thinking around anti-monopoly work for a long time. I obviously don't come at it from that perspective. I really, I really got interested in it, I'll say, because of Warren um, and her thinking. More is a political philosophy and kind of way to see the world and a way to see how we can actually produce material benefits for working people in the immediate And so sort of came to that thinking from that campaign. But I also see it from the political perspective and this kind of political consolidation of power and how many politicians often are bought by these monopolies or influenced by these monopolies. So I I come at it from a totally different lens than I think a lot of the existing world. And that that being said, there's, of course, other political operatives that are are marrying these two worlds together as well. But I like to describe us as kind of an action-oriented anti-monopoly organization and corporate power organization. I think we're now in the phase of the movement where, like you said, we have really bold regulators, increasingly bold legislators. I think we've moved the narrative. We have President Biden giving an amazing State of the Union talking about junk fees and extractive corporations you know, exerting their power on workers or protecting non-compete agreements. And that's, those are huge, 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 huge wins. And I think the Biden administration in many ways has, has been so good on using this as a way to show what the party can be and what good government can mean. When it comes to actually helping people, I think they've used monopoly power and corporate power as a really effective lens to showcase that in, in many different legislative actions and EOs and all that stuff. And now I think we're in the movement where actually we need to to show people that they can do something about it. It's public facing and that we need to figure out increasing strategies and power around absorbing the public and, and getting them to actually take action and make connections in their own personal life to how corporate power and consolidated political and economic power is, is ruining their lives and that they can do something about it. I see ourselves as a little bit more of an action oriented group and campaigning group and political group in a way that hopefully is really helpful to the broader ecosystem, but but is also connected to, to other social movements in a meaningful way and not just in our own corner. If you could have your choice of a couple monopolies that would get, say, broken up, which would you pick? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I should wake up and think about that every morning. I kind of do. Right now, utilities are on my mind a lot, um, in particular because of the the first energy crisis that's been happening in Michigan. I don't know if you've been following this at all. A million people are without power, more than that, I think, in the end. And utility monopolies are particularly violent and evil because they exert so much political control. A lot of people don't know this, but it is 100% legal for utility monopolies to use ratepayer money to pay for their lobbying and political costs, often lobbying and spending in elections that work against consumers' best interests, like blocking transitions to clean energy, electing right-wing sociopaths that want to further entrench the utility monopoly. So utilities are, are high in my priority and I think really breaking their political power. We're doing some work on that right now. They're just kind of a perfect cyclone of... They're kind of regulated monopolies. They're almost state-created monopolies in a lot of cases or state-allowed. In some instances, yes. In some places, yeah. Yes, in some instances, yes. And there's a, and there's movements in a couple of states. In Maine in particular right now, there's a really amazing campaign going on. I think it's called Our Power Maine to actually get a, a public, fully public utility in Maine, which is very exciting um, because the, the Maine utility, I'm forgetting the name, the current monopoly, they are the worst like I think the, the they get the highest outages or have the lowest approval rating in the country. So anyway, so utilities are high for me and they are destroying the planet in many ways and also use their 
their political influence to ruin people's lives. And a lot of places fight off uh, solar uh, or alternate energy or, you know, they they favor the kind of polluting power maybe that's that they're used to producing. Let's 100%. Say. Yep. What else would you like to fix? My slightly more lighthearted one, but it's not lighthearted in the destruction it's done is the Ticketmaster Live Nation monopoly, which we just did. We were just a part of a campaign. Um, They're up to like 70% of of that, that market now yep. or something. Yep. Right? I think it's more than that yep. at this point. Yeah. And they had a hearing a couple of weeks ago where the Live Nation CEO testified and a couple independent artists had just talked about just the like personal lack of lack of control at a small band has over their own lives and their own schedule and their own music. I mean, it's so in opposition to everything we know about creativity and freedom and the right to, to control your own life and your business, your small business. And it's just horrible. And I think it's one of those monopolies that actually really helps demonstrate how extractive and how wide ranging these can be. They, they affect independent business owners, you know, artists, customers are getting screwed over every single day. So that's, that's second on my list for right now. Do you think you can have a good monopoly? No, I don't. I really don't. I increasingly think that there is a real urgency for, and I feel so hopeful. And I think this is, this is demonstrating the Biden administration's regulators and a lot of their own work. And then I think some of the new freshmen are demonstrating this in super powerful ways that it's actually so key to the Democratic Party's realignment to really become the the party that's willing to take on monopoly power at all levels. So, no. So what are you guys exactly doing? The main kind of meat of our organization is running, um, well, two things, running these bigger campaigns that help demonstrate monopoly power, bring new people into them, actually bring grassroots communities in and, and get people to take action with their state regulators, with their state representatives or with national electeds. We just, for example, ran a campaign or just launched a campaign rather that hopefully will have a lot of legs to expose some of the Republicans that have been working against, I don't know if you saw the FTC came out a couple of weeks ago to ban non-compete agreements in, in their entirety. And there are a couple usual right-wing suspects coming out of the woodwork to try to oppose the ban. And interestingly enough, four Republicans put their name on a letter, basically calling it an overreach. You know, this is we have to protect non-competes apparently because workers like to be trapped in their jobs. And I like to answer for my corporate donors as they basically said in, in their letter. And so we came out with kind of a mini ad campaign and, and did a bunch of billboards in their district, just exposing that they are, are the Republicans willing to put their names on being against a ban on non-competes. We do a lot of paid media. We do a lot of kind of flashy tactics and local campaigns and local actions to, to get people involved in, in fighting against monopolies, but also bring awareness, I think, to who the opposition and who the villains are in upholding a lot of monopoly power right now in, in our economy and our government. And then we also, I'll just mention, do some state level work. And we work with a lot of state legislators who are fighting this stuff in their communities in a couple of target states. Who do you find to be good allies in this fight? I mean, there's an incredible network of, of small business owners, I think, that have been really affected by this. A lot of worker power and, and workers who can speak to this really directly. Actually, AELP put out an amazing report on UPMC, which is the big hospital system in Pittsburgh in Summerlee's district, and their monopoly power. They've used it to union bust. They've used their monopoly power to 
make care worse and patient care worse and jobs worse. It's a good example of all the different allies and stakeholders in this fight. And then also just say, I think there's a lot of new members of Congress who are really already superstars on this stuff. Congressman Greg Kazar, Congresswoman Summer Lee, Congressman Chris Deluzio, those three are real, have already been standouts on, on you know, fighting the stuff in their own communities and also just raising alarm bells against monopoly power in our current economy. So yeah, those are some, some early champions. Are you optimistic about where things are going? Um, yes. More than I saw probably on Elizabeth Warren's campaign, I think people, you know, it's the number one, when you do a national poll and you include, do you feel like corporations have too much control over our daily lives or our economy or your local economy? Do you feel like there's corruption in our government because of corporate spending and corporate lobbyists? Like everyone agrees. (laughs) It's like the number one most unifying transpartisan sentiment. I think that kind of raw anger and lack of dignity that people feel in their lives, they're making that connection that corporate power is at the root of a lot of that. And I think that's all that matters is that everyday people, there's only, there's so much the regulators can do. There's so much that people in Washington can do. They can lead in so many ways and we're so supportive of those efforts. But I think until everyday people are, are, you know, able to have the power and the fury to really rise up and rise up against corporate power in their own communities, in their own lives. That's how we know we'll be winning. And I think we're seeing that in lots of different examples. I mean, Ticketmaster, again, I bring up, it's no joke. Taylor Swift fans coming on to break up Ticketmaster's monopoly is funny until it's not. And I take that 100% as a huge a huge win. Um, and I take it as a huge win that there's only four Republicans willing to put their names on a stupid letter saying they want to oppose a ban on non-compete agreement. So I think we're seeing we're seeing really exciting political wins. I'm feeling hopeful. Is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't think so. I haven't had a chance to examine my own evolution in a way. So you're leaving me with big questions to ask myself. How about that? <laughs> I suspect that you've mastered a lot of the answers to them, as you showed. And I even you even made me bring up Catholicism within the first three minutes, which that's not that's <laughs> that's that's special. So thank you. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think that's it. I don't have any closing thoughts. Yeah. That was Helen Brosnan. She's at fightcorporatemonopolies.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.